What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks so much for tuning in. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. Happy everything. It's 2022 and we can only go up from here. Yes, you can clip that and share it with me at the end of the year when I jinxed everyone. Excited to bring you some new learning in this new year. If you like what you hear at Smart People Podcast, don't forget, tell a friend. Spread the word, trying to grow this thing. This week, I think a very timely episode. Because when you think about the new year and you watch it on the TV and you see all the people and you start thinking about the state of our world, you ever think that we're going to deal with overcrowding? Are there too many people on this planet? Well, what if I were to tell you that one of our biggest challenges might be the decline? in population. For example, did you know that even China has a shrinking population? That's on top of countries like Japan, Germany, the U.S., and more. This week on the show, we are talking with Bradley Sherman about this topic and his new book, which is called The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Essentially, 
there is a shift happening all over the world, which is our general population is growing older and we are not refilling that population with enough young people. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but there's a lot of complications that come along with it. And that's why I want to talk with Bradley. Bradley is a demographic futurist. Now think about that. Somebody who projects into the future based on demographics. Pretty interesting, right? And he deals with all things involved with the business of longevity, including the groundbreaking AARP Aging Readiness and Competitiveness Report. Bradley is the founder and CEO of The SuperAge, a global strategic research and advisory firm helping public and private organizations understand the challenges and harness the opportunities of demographic change. A perfect way to kick off the year thinking about what's happening with the people on this planet. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, if you're flushed with cash after the holidays, if you've sold your stocks and have money lying around, support us at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. We'd love to have you. Reach out at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. And other than that, let's get to the episode. Here it is, Bradley Sherman talking about his new book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Enjoy. All right, let's do it. Well, Bradley, first, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So listen, this episode's a little self-serving because you're talking about why I might not have social security come the time I go to retire. And that's just one small aspect. So you've got this new book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic History. And I want to just start here. Um, what are the issues, as you see them, we are facing or could be facing in the future as it relates to demographics? Well, Chris, thank you again for having me. I think I'd like to just point out one one point of clarification. It's the super age decoding our demographic destiny, not our history. History points in many ways to how we can solve for the future. It also gives us some uh, tools that help can predict what's coming. Um, but the book itself is an examination of demographics. And that might sound, sound like a big old yawn to some people. But two significant megatrends are affecting humanity right now. One is a significant decrease in births, which is happening virtually everywhere in the world, and this radical extension of human life. And they're coming together, these two megatrends, to create what I call a super megatrend, which is population aging. So our populations, while they continue to grow, are also getting old at the same time. So from about 1900 until today, we've doubled life expectancy on average for human beings. Once we get past this period of population aging, populations will begin to plateau. And in some cases, they will start to contract. Believe it or not, uh, Japan, which is the world's third largest economy today, has been in contraction now for the past decade. In fact, last year, they lost you know, roughly half a million people. Just because there is no um, exceptionally high birth rate, there are no proactive immigration policies, so the population that they have is simply dying off. In China, uh, last year for the first time since 1949, since the Great Famine, China actually lost population. They contracted. 
And that's the second largest economy in the world. And for the past six years, our own country, the United States, has been seeing decreasing birth rates. And in fact, last year, 2020, was our lowest birth rate on record. Wow. So all of this will have really significant implications for the way we live, uh, our day-to-day lives, the way we experience our entire life course, and the way in which we retire or maybe not retire in the future. Will there need to be a revisioning or a rethinking of the social contract? I think there will be, because the numbers are just different. Will there be greater inclusion of older people in the workforce? Absolutely. In fact, uh, this piece of data came across my, my plate last night that shows that the workforce over 75, people over the age of 75 in the formal labor market, will grow by nearly 100% by the end of this decade. What? Yeah. And the, and, the, and the labor force participation rate of people age 16 to 24, those kids that work in service jobs or, you know, their first jobs out of college, that's actually going to contract by about right. 6%. So what we have to think about is society in a more holistic way. It's not young versus old. It's not us versus them. It's if we want to keep growing, if we want to keep improving Uh, our social and economic condition, then we have to bring all people on board. We have to really work in inclusion at all points in the human life. Such an excellent place to start. And where I couldn't help but go here, in my mind, much of our values, much of our politics, much of our infrastructure, our systems is driven by business. And I'm talking primarily in the U.S., but globally, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And as of right now, having been steeped in it for two decades, you know, we really don't put a high value on older folks in the in the business world. Right. Right. Is that something that you think they will and by they the business businesses will readily adopt this idea that, hey, we need, you know, old older people on our teams or what's going to happen there? Are they just going to try and replace it with, you know, industrial or, you know, technology and things like that? Yeah. Well, first of all, if we don't have people in the workforce, we don't have consumers. So businesses kind of get double whammied if they don't figure this out. The first thing is they're not going to have enough talent. Our, our labor force conditions today look similar to the end of the second world war in terms of the tightness of the labor market. Um, but also, if people aren't working, they're not consuming at the same rates. So it's it's really counter and it might be you know maybe sound a little counterintuitive, but you have to have both if you want to be a business that survives in this new era, because people in working are are generally more active consumers. Also, if you have older people in the workforce, it breeds empathy to their needs, their wants, their desires that younger people just can't have, understand because they don't have the same life experience. And, you know, I, I think I mentioned early on, you know, I, I'm a big student of history. Like, history is a really important predictor of the future. And it's hard for most people to believe this, but in 1950, kind of that period of, you know, America's golden era in terms of labor, in terms of prosperity, in terms of all of these different things, the labor force participation rate for people over the age of 65 was nearly 50%. Really? Yeah. So working a long life is actually what we did for most of human history. We worked until we died. 
this concept of retirement is as much of a social construct as anything with the world has ever seen. Retirement, that, that idea of getting a pension, mm-hmm. is only 120, 130 years old. Well, and that's and it pretty was much o- over with. <laughs> the pension. And that's pretty, it's pretty much done because when you think about the old world, you know, there were a lot of young people at the bottom that could pay for the relatively small uh-huh. number of older people at the top. Well, the new world doesn't look that way. There, there are fewer younger people at the bottom than at the top. The dependency ratio, which is the number of people working to the number of people that aren't, is out of whack. So there is no choice but to fix these systemic issues of ageism in the workplace, reconsider that work might not be a linear path anymore, that people might stop and start throughout the life, and to consider that older people, as well as younger people, are really important consumer group together. You can't look at them as just one or the other necessarily. You should really focus on inclusive design. And there are businesses that are doing this right now, and it's all right under our nose. Really? So Apple, Apple computers, for example, men over the age of 65 engage with products, Apple products, more than any other consumer group. That doesn't make sense to me. Is that just purely because of the number of those people? No, it's not. It's because of the time spent on the devices. Men oh, like tech. Good men like tech. And Apple has done a really good job of building tech that men want in the sense that it's sleek, it's cool, it allows men to feel part of the pack, um, not relegated to the sidelines. It's a luxury product in many regards. But more than anything else, men and women are are increasingly intentional in their health later in life. It kind of a light comes on in middle age and people I think send, say to themselves, oh man, I should really fix some of the things that I haven't been doing right or I really need to keep up with my regimen. And Apple is basically a data protection and healthcare company now. And the fact that the Apple Watch can monitor your vitals throughout the day, remind you to relax, remind you to get up and move, measure your EKG, measure your oxygen levels is crazy. And it's such an important device for folks of all ages. But it's other devices, too, that you would never consider to be aligned with an older population as well, like Peloton. Peloton? How is that a device for older people? Well, it's not just older people, it's younger people, too. Peloton's stated business mission was to reach the 35 to 65-year-old age cohort. Didn't realize and they that. Have, yeah, and they have done that and more. In fact, uh, President Biden and Jill Biden at 78 and 70, sorry, 79 and 70 respectively, have one in the White House. And they ride it regularly by all reports. So this is a high-end device that looks young, that feels young, that's marketed as young, but is used by an age-diverse clientele. And that's just the tip of the spear. You take a look at the automobile marketplace where two out of three new cars is purchased by people over the age of 50. And you start to see that a lot of the innovations that are happening in the automobile sector are are considering that this uh, this demographic and its needs, as well as its wants to feel cool, sexy, relevant, engaged, and not just in the pack ahead of it. Right. Well, there's so much there, and I'm trying to keep notes because I'm like, I have to ask him this. One is you mentioned, if we go back a couple minutes, this idea of retirement, retirement being kind of a new construct and one that 
wasn't done just about 100 years ago and, and probably won't be the same going forward. My gut reaction to that is, Bradley, listen, I want to retire. And here's mm -hmm. the key, though, and I, I'm interested, given your future perspective, the reason I want to retire, and I've seen this as somebody who focuses on corporate productivity, is people everywhere are being grinded down to the bone yeah. every day at their job. And so it's no longer sustainable to work till the end, and it's also no longer enjoyable by most standards. So how do we solve this issue? Is it one of, look, we still want to retire so we can enjoy our golden years, or is it we need to ease up on what we're asking of people so they will want to work longer? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really self-directed at the end of the day. Um, for me, I think that a future that allows periods of pause is one that looks a lot more attractive than just altogether stopping at retirement. And I think, you know, taking like a gap year between careers or between jobs is not a bad thing to do. The system isn't quite set up for that yet. People ask a lot of questions when you stop for a period of time. Exactly. But for those people that might be in transition, transitioning out of a career and into a new one, this is where I think government can really come in and help, especially if we want to keep Social Security alive for a longer period of time. We should be allowed to take a pensions pause where we can draw on the pension, maybe draw on our savings, draw on our 401ks, any of our retirement savings vehicles, and live off that for a year or two while we learn a new skill. Um, and we can come out and be better equipped to be in the economy of today rather than the economy of yesterday. Um, but this idea of wholesale stopping, that is always been a fallacy. Um, very few people really want that. Um, through my research, both uh, quantitative and qualitative, in talking with people across this country and around the world, there is a consistent theme that emerges, and that's that people want purpose in their lives. I think the biggest challenge with the modern workforce today is just like you said, it's a grind. And it's a grind that doesn't necessarily make you feel like you're contributing to anything bigger than yourself. Well, the same holds true when you retire, because if you don't feel like you're contributing when you retire, that same emptiness exists with inside you. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem for folks. And that's why you hear, you know, folks becoming lonely or isolated in later life because they aren't working. And this is especially true for men. Men keep their social networks within their workplace for the most part. Um, women have a little bit more of a luxury because they maintain historical um, um, social connections within the community, within their families, and within the families of the children of their their friends of their children. Yeah. So they're, they're, the idea of a wholesale stop is silly. Um, stopping at some point for a period of years throughout your life, I think, is a lot smarter. Um but I think you'll find most people, if you ask them how they're enjoying retirement, very few people will say they are. They'll yeah. say they're missing something. And it takes them years, man. It takes them years in some cases to to find that balance again, to find you know either a part-time job or some type of vocation that gives them fulfillment. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm recognizing now, and correct me where I'm wrong here, but is you know, it might be at a certain point, yes, you do come back, but you come back in a different 
you know, in a different structure, right? So I know a lot of my, my friends' parents who have retired and now are like uh, part-time professors or teachers or yeah. something like that, right? So even in the corporate world, and again, that doesn't exist as much when you're talking like real corporate companies, you know, and things like that. Are they going to have to adapt to that? Do you see that happening? Oh, hey, you know. I do. In fact, you know, in fact, I I do see uh, occasionally companies offering some type of sabbatical. Um, it's it's not commonplace at this point, but it is a I think it is an emerging trend, allowing people to take you know uh, six weeks to a quarter off um, to learn something new, to take a vacation, to truly unplug. This is really healthy. Um, it's healthy for the workforce. It it keeps people grounded. Um, it 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 establishes a greater bond, a greater connection between the employee and the employer. Um, I think it's altogether a, a great practice. You're also seeing some companies consider um, some of the harder parts of life. You know, caregiving, for example, is really difficult on adult children and adult grandchildren. And more and more businesses are saying, okay, well, we already give paternal and maternal leave. We're going to give caregiving leave now, too, so that people don't feel the same pressure to perform when they have to take care of a loved one. And, you know, a good friend of mine, Carrie Hannon, would always, and she's an author as well that talks about older workers. She said, you know, uh, working at home was a privilege. Now it's a right. Um, And that's true because... We who do have caregiving responsibilities found that that gave us a little release on the pressure cooker of life, and and that's that's not going to go away. Um, more companies are are going to need to and are starting to offer flexibility as well in terms of schedule, whether it's location or 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 the actual time that you need to be with work. Um, but you're even seeing some really innovative companies consider the needs of an older adult you know there's a company in australia called westpac they're a bank and about 10 years i think ago 10 years or so ago they instituted the first grandparents leave because they had a significant market need to a significant need within their workforce to make that adjustment because most of their tellers were women in their 50s and 60s they were having their first Uh grandchildren and they were leaving the workforce because they couldn't do both so Westpac did the most revolutionary thing possible. They asked these women why they were leaving. And when these women told them why, they came back with a solution to, to retain them as workers. And now a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. These days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com smart. That's linkedin.com smart 
to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. I love that case study because it adds a little levity or possibility to Mm -hmm. this future you talk about. Because again, I'm a little jaded in the fact that, uh, you know, they might ask, why are you leaving? And then they'll say, great, we'll just replace you with somebody else. But I think, yeah, they don't have that luxury. They just don't have that luxury anymore. It's gone. Right, right. That's what you're saying, essentially. It's only going to continue down this path, too. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, Chris, we're looking at um, the birth of the golden era of workers because there is a supply and demand issue. And for decades, we were able to take this glut of labor that the boomers and the millennials presented to the workplace, this glut of labor from global markets, from places like China and India, and we just exploited it. Our businesses exploited it. They they uh, they took away they they took away benefits yep. from the worker. Um, they they squeezed every last bit of you out out from you because they said, well, we can just do this better, faster, cheaper overseas. That is that is going away. Um, it's not going to be quite as simple to get labor anymore because there's just fewer of us that are working. That's a good point. I. I'm I'm enjoying this new vision to an extent. I know we're going to get into, you know, some of the challenges. One other thing I wrote down is I recently read or I I can picture the graph of the amount of wealth that is owned by I think it was the baby <laughs> boomer generation, right? Yeah. And so yeah. what happens with that as we age? So here's what in my mind my question is, they get older, they're not dying, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Please don't mistake what I'm saying, right? Yeah. But they yeah. hold on to that. Um, but they're not necessarily working, that wealth is sitting there either collecting interest or, you know, how does that play into this demographic shift as it relates to both younger and the companies that are, that are you know, having these people? Oh, that is a tough question because it has so many different angles that, that contribute to it. Yes, the boomers on whole control an incredible amount of wealth. There's, there's, there's no debating that. Um, some of that wealth is already starting to move. Um, it's it's referred to as the great wealth transfer. And trillions of dollars will move between generations over the course of the next 10 or 25 years. In fact, for many millennials and for, I'm sorry, late Gen X and early millennials, they've already started to see some of this infusion, either be, either in helping with education or helping people buy their first home. Um, that money has already begun to flow. Um, that's where you hear kind of that tongue-in-cheek, you know, the bank of mom and dad. Oh, yeah. Well, bank I, of mo- I tap into that bank a couple times. Yeah, the bank of, <laughs> I mean, the bank of mom and dad exists because um, everything has gotten too expensive um, and because we're not making the same salaries that we were against the cost of living of yesterday. So the bank of mom and dad is a very essential part of this this transformation, and it is continuing to move money into the marketplace. It isn't just coming directly from boomers themselves. So we have to consider that piece. Where I get hung up in 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 struggling to vision the the greatness of this era, because there's a lot of greatness that comes with this period of time, is that this concentration of wealth that's happened, this great income inequality, has also contributed to a gap in longevity that is ever widening. So on average across this country, there's a 20-year gap between the richest rich and the poorest poor in terms of the number of years they live on average. 
And just like anything in America, you know, these are tied intimately to race, to gender, to to gender identity, to sexual sexual sexuality. They all interplay in a way that makes lives for certain categories of people very comfortable and makes the lives of other categories of people pretty difficult. So in a city like, and this tends to really show up in cities that have a history of segregation. So in my city of Washington, D.C., there's a nearly 27-year life gap between the richest rich and the poorest poor. 27 years. And now that may, that may like rattle in your brain. It's a big number. But think about what you can do in 27 years. And then it really kind of explodes as to how unfair this is. That's a long time to not be able to earn. That's a long time that you miss in terms of passing on wealth to your progeny. So whereas boomers, and this is very general with a very vast generalization with boomers that they're rich because they're not all rich. Sure. They just hold as a group a lot of wealth. This means that the wealth that's being held is, is is staying and growing for longer periods of time. Right. So when it passes, it'll pass to their progeny, and their progeny will already have this massive foot up against the rest of the world. But, you know, in America today, and, and it's kind of fascinating how things fall out, because um, gay, white, cisgendered men earn the most out of any demographic in this country. Really, but they but they don't live the longest, and that's that's because of the legacy of HIV/AIDS. That's because of drug and alcohol abuse, because of cigarette use, tobacco use. Um, we don't live the longest. We are saying me, I am a gay man, but the group that lives lives the longest are, are Asian women, but they don't make the most. Um, but if you're a you know if you're a trans uh, a person trans person of color in this country. You can expect to earn the least, you know, about 250% below the poverty line, and your life expectancy will be about 30 to 35 years. Now, just as a point of information, the life expectancy for the total country is about 78. Do do you think most of that—this is an area I'm out of my depth. That's why I talk to smart people, Mm -hmm. so that is my forewarning. But do you think a lot of that is due to life choices that are made— and, and oftentimes made because of the impact the current system has on them. So, for example, you were just talking about oh. tobacco use and things like that. It's a coping mechanism because of the world those people are living in. I mean, I think that's part of it. But this gets into, you know, some of the larger concerns that were raised by movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. They are inequalities that exist and then compound over time. So, you know, there's a there's a inequality when it comes to earnings. There's inequality in terms of living conditions or access to health care systems. So it isn't just diet and personal choices, although those do those do play a pretty important role. Um, but it's, you know, uh, it's the incarceration rate. Yeah, you, know, that's a you, you, you trim a significant amount of, of life off a group of people just by being incarcerated. Um, yeah, there's a lot of pieces that contribute to this shortening. And don't get me wrong, you're going to find plenty of old black folks in this country, plenty of old white folks, plenty of, of old Asian folks. Yeah. You'll find some trans women of color that, are, that live a ripe old age. But these are averages, and they indicate both systemic and structural problems 
to the way in which we consider life. I was going to say, you know, as you're saying this, what I find is this tipping point. And I know this is to an extent what your book is about, but like we're at, given what you're saying, we're at this stage where I don't know if we're ready to evolve. I don't know if our businesses are ready to evolve. I don't know if they, 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 they always seem like a lagging indicator. We'll cling on to the old days as long as we can, because it's, it's what benefits us at the top the most. And mm-hmm. so I, I feel like all of the change that is necessary, right? If we have, uh, if we're going to have less young people, so less people active in the workforce, if we're not able to look at our old people and have them be productive and look at them for the value that they provide, we can't provide social safety nets. If we can't look at all the diversity and how we support them, that's a lot to take on. And all at once, it doesn't paint. I'm not feeling too optimistic (laughs) about the opportunity. Let me tell you why I am optimistic, because Good. because my optimism always shines through on this at the end of the day. The first thing is, at least within America, we love to wait until something's broken until we yes. before we fix it. Yes. Like that is our forte. Yeah. We will wait until that 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 horse is so broken <laughs> that it can't run again. Yeah. And that's what's happened, I think, with our approach to human longevity and our approach to long life is we've just waited until it breaks. Well, we're at that tipping point, like you said. We're at that breaking point where a lot of businesses simply won't have a choice but to engage older people in the workforce for longer periods of time, to recruit from a talent pool that, quite frankly, is just sitting idle right now. And in some cases, faces significant barriers to entry because of, you know, systemic and, and, and um, internalized uh, ageism. Um, but the opportunity that exists, the business community is starting to see this already. That's where I see the greatest opportunity, the greatest possibility, is that key members of the business community are starting to flash red lights on the board. And they're starting to say, if we don't do something about this, we're going to miss our market opportunity. We're going to we're going to lose our market position. And there are two cases in the past month uh, or two that I've seen that's that that are shouting at me. The business community gets it now, or they're just starting to understand. And the first is when McKinsey and Company jump into the conversation because they never leave a dime on the table. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 the other was uh, in I think it was late November, early December. Of last year, the uh, CEO of um, uh, Whirlpool uh, was on uh, uh, Mad Money, and he was talking about how there is a systemic problem in the labor force right now because there just aren't enough people to do the jobs. And Kramer says something along the lines of, do you think this is driven by demographics? He goes, it's absolutely driven by demographics, which I my jaw just about fell on the floor yeah. when he said that. And he said, what looks... Um, systemic now will likely become structural if we don't do something to fix it. Well, let me tell you something, Chris. When a CEO says that, that group of CEOs, that 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 chamber of echoes, they're all going to start talking about it now. And they're all going to look at ways in which they can improve their market position for today and tomorrow. You know why that's interesting? The labor shortage has been widely reported, but so much so in the vein of uh, COVID and of, you know, what the government support over the past year and, um, you know, all those things, companies exploiting labor to the point where they don't want to be in the, in the, in the workforce. 
Is this actively happening now? Is this actively contributing to the problem we're seeing now? Or is this more of a 10 years and on problem? <laughs> well, this would have been a 10 years and on problem had it not been for COVID. Uh -huh. COVID changed everything. And most of us who are in the field of demographics pinned the year of 2030 as the year when things would really change for America in terms of the labor the labor market. But the reality is COVID just injected speed into the veins of change. And what we saw was older people at the onset of COVID were kicked out of their jobs, made redundant overnight, either because they were too expensive on the balance sheet or because somebody at the office didn't think that they were going to be able to make the transition to a digital uh, a digital world uh, of work. Um, that is despicable behavior on the side of business. And it really turned out to be short-sighted. The second thing is, at the onset of the pandemic, we told people over the age of 65, falsely, mind you, that they were all going to get sick and all going to die of COVID. That was gross. And it was irresponsible. And it was our scientific community that did it. They were working off data, but they were working off correlated data, not causal data. Older people die because of disease at a higher rate than younger people, no matter what. But what we did in that moment was we scared people out of work. People said, oh, I'm not going in if I'm going to die. Right. So they left. And the third part was, um, whether you call it the Obama economy or the Trump economy or the COVID economy, we are riding high on investment in the stock market. So if you have money in the market as an employee, whether a 401k or some type of pension plan, and you're a rational actor, you took a look at things and you said, okay, baby, Vegas rules, I'm out. Yep. So we had this hollowing out of the workforce of 60 plus year olds leaving at this expedited rate because of those three things, this triumvirate of events. And what happened was everyone looked around and said, well, there just aren't as many of us. So employers, I think, in many ways, grinded their employees even more, which has caused what some are calling the great resignation. I think that's a bit of a false name for it. Okay, It's more like a great realignment. It's a realignment of workers' wants and their needs what they're willing to put up with in the office. I think because there is a scarcity of labor, there's not a shortage. Let's be clear about that. There's plenty of people to do the work. There's just not enough people doing it. They're not getting what they want from employers to do the job. Um, employers are going to have to become more creative. And with my clients, I talk to them about a business case. And C is the, the reality that you're going to have to compete for talent now period, where you had to be kind of a passive before, electronic resumes, those type of services, you're going to have to go out there and actively engage for it. Wow. A means that you're going to have to augment your workforce with artificial intelligence and automation. You know, machine learning will be our friend. It will not take all jobs. It will create new jobs and it will enhance the jobs that we already have. 
S is that we have to support each and every worker if we're going to be a good employer. And as I said earlier, that's typically through some type of leave, caregiving leave or flexibility in the workplace, meeting employees where they are, not where you want them to be or where you feel like you need them to be. Uh, Nobody wants to be chained to a desk from nine to five anymore. That is archaic. It was archaic before the pandemic, and it's just ridiculous post-pandemic. And the last one, E, is that each and every employer has to figure out how to extend working lives. And they can typically do this through ergonomics or that flexibility in schedule, which also falls under benefits. So there are really small, actionable steps that employers can do if they want to do them. These don't cost employers a lot of money. They're low-cost interventions. And they can really be transformative, but there has to be the will. And the will typically only shows up when a business is threatened, when its market position is threatened. And it's going to happen. It is happening right now. And now a quick break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Growing up, cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid, but I had to give it up because I realized it was full of sugar and junk that you really shouldn't eat. That's why I'm so pumped about Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. And it only has 140 calories per serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack with four flavors, which are cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. My favorite flavor right now is fruity, But I went a little crazy the other day and mixed cocoa and peanut butter together. And check it out. It tastes exactly like peanut butter cup. It's so good. Not only is it good, but it's super nutritious. It's a delicious but super healthy cereal that really brings joy to your mornings or afternoons. Or if you're like me, the evenings too. Go to magicspoon.com slash smart to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code SMART at checkout to save $5 off your first order. Again, that promo code is SMART, S-M-A-R-T. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com smart and use the code SMART to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. And now back to the interview. So I'd love to get your perspective on this dystopia that I envision. And it's why (laughs) I'm investing in the market in these large tech companies. Because Uh what I'm scared of is a few companies take over the world. And what it is, is because of technology, it's advancing so rapidly that uh, it does take jobs. And what I'm, what I'm envisioning is that they don't need as many people to make the revenue that they once were, and they also are consolidating to where it's just large players. So take an Amazon, take a Walmart, all of these examples. On the flip side, it could be that they use this technology to make up for the labor shortage you're talking about and mm-hmm. then leverage the aging population, right? But that would require them to be more willing to share their profits or to be more supportive. Like I keep hearing this idea of a safety net, whether that's governmental or corporate. Sure. Does that make sense? It does. The The one thing you have to remember, though, is that from a historical perspective, 
during eight, any great period of transformation, industrial, scientific, technological, um, we have eliminated certain jobs. We have eliminated certain inefficiencies. But as I always say, you know, no one cries for the lamplighter. Right. New ones are no one no one yeah. no one cries for the man who made horseshoes. Right. <laughs> um and they're just not really part of our economy in the way that they used to be. Um there's a there's a whole district, you know, just a few short blocks from my house that was all stables where you they made you know, they made horseshoes that and they're cafes now. So when you think about this future transformation, do I share the same fears about big companies owning everything? Yes and no. I do think that there are a lot of companies that hold a lot of stake in the world. But even today, you know, the 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 biggest employers in this country are small and medium-sized enterprises. Technology, you know, where it may help the big guys uh, improve their efficiencies and earn more, it also helps the small guys and gals um, become entrepreneurs. Point. You know, when you think about the fact that with the internet, um it's opened up marketplaces for businesses that never existed before that never would exist right um without that connectivity and you know i think this is one of the great promises of the metaverse too is that there's going to be greater ownership of the things that people produce so whereas you may see a somewhat dystopian future of big businesses grinding us to the bone and taking all the wealth and Yada yada yada. I I think that's maybe part of the future, um, <laughs> but I don't think that's the only part of the future. I see this as a period of great entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I see this as a period of great um, potential for the worker, and where technology will be utilized to replace man in some cases, it will allow man and woman to achieve new opportunities too. I mean, think about the fact that that we're sitting here uh, miles away from each other on a, on a stable internet connection having this conversation. This wouldn't have happened 10 years ago without satellites. Trust me, it didn't because we tried. <laughs> Literally. I mean, yeah, no, true. I mean, but so so think about think about the possibility, not just the problems. The problems exist, Chris, if we do nothing to address the that's, realities. Yes. That's that's where we have a big hiccup. If we don't reconsider how pensions are delivered, the pension systems could collapse. If we don't reconsider how healthcare is delivered and how much it costs, I mean, my god. Um we're not going to be able to deliver healthcare to more people uh at an affordable rate. So there are plenty of things that we do need to consider that I see as problematic. But on the whole, I think the future looks pretty bright. Well, I like that. And I know that is the slant that your book takes. And I know I've read some reviews of it. That's what a lot of people see. And I think that's we have to approach it that way. Right. It is to, to an extent in our DNA. I wanted to ask you, as you mentioned, things like healthcare um, and and pensions. And again, where I started Social Security, again, not being as educated on this, my concern is we just keep printing money as we're doing now to band-aid it until it gets us into so much trouble we can't get out and take healthcare as a perfect example i could see that being the case because if we're not willing to pay into it and this mm -hmm. becomes a literal breaking point 
the government will probably do its best to, to not just let people die in the streets, which comes with inflation. Uh, is it going to require, uh, is it as simple as, listen, we're going to have to be more communal. We're going to have to pay more taxes. We're going to have to move in that direction. Well, I mean, I think with any kind of system that is suffering, you have to consider a number of different angles. Um, the first is that, uh, from my perspective, care should be universal. Um, and it is something that we should all be paying into. What that amount looks like, I think, is a question mark, and I'd leave that up to policymakers. But I look at the health of people as essential to the functioning of our economy. If people are sick, um, if people stay sick, if people push off getting treatment because they can't afford it, that hurts us on the whole. Um, part of the challenge with the current healthcare system is that it's incredibly inefficient, too, in the way in which care is delivered. And again, COVID, you know, ginned up change that was already happening. So the emergence of telehealth, which sounds so antiquated right now, digital delivery of care <laughs> um, is going to be a prevailing trend going forward. My family is going, you know, went away for the holidays to Italy for Christmas this year. And um, there was this last minute, you know, Joe Biden changed the, the COVID rules right before the holidays. And um, we were left coming back the day after Christmas. And in Italy on Christmas Day, nothing's open. So how are we going to get our COVID tests done? Well, there was one option, and we actually are able to take this uh, Biomax COVID test that was developed by Abbott Labs, and we can, through eMed, um, with a doctor on the other side of our mobile phone, 3,000, 4,000 miles away, swab, test, in 15 minutes have the results, digital, and we can take right. those to the airport. So that that creates efficiencies in the system that will help with care. So that's what, you know, where, where you say, you know, does technology scare you on the whole? No, it doesn't, because things like this are made made real and made possible because of technology. Yeah, that's an excellent point there. Listen, I know we're coming out of time, and I know a lot of this is in the book, so I'm not asking you to give away the whole plot line. But give us high level. I, I love talking to futurists because, you know, you do spend the majority of your time thinking about what things will be. And it's the most creative endeavor. What do you imagine kind of give us maybe like two or three points in time, this shift in demographics, what it's going to look like or how it's going to impact the people listening. The shifts will be significant and they'll be relatively swift. They're, they've already happened. Um, literally they're all around us and they're not just affecting the older population longevity and extended human life actually pushes more healthy years into the middle of life. So the first thing that I think most people will see if they take a look around and really see what's happening in their communities is that the life course is fundamentally altered. And it's not unusual today for men and women and uh, non-binary folks to get married in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, sometimes for the first time. It's not unusual. In fact, it's the only group of women that are seeing a bump in um, uh, birth rates 
women 40 to 49 having their first children, um, which would have been uh, impossible just a few decades ago. We're thinking about life differently. We're having both an extended adolescence, uh, one that lasts well into our 20s, as well as an extended middle age, which could, which could last well into our 70s. And that's already happening in front of us. Uh, go to a park. You'll see that the parents there range in age from about 18 to 65 now, and they have the same age kids. So if you're open to seeing it, it's already happening. The second thing is um, that uh, retirement is dead. You know, retirement as a construct was a faulty construct. It came in the middle century when a lot of bad ideas were thrown out there in terms of modernizing society. There were a few people that got behind it. They created this vision for what the future would be. And the future is not old white people walking down the sandy beach as the (laughs) waves lap at their feet. That is not what later life looks like for most people. It might be a component of it, but it's not what it looks like. So we're going to see more people in the workforce that are older. Um, They're going to be there because they want to, because they have some need to be social and connected and feel part of something bigger than them to gain purpose, or they're doing it because um, they need to. They don't have enough money saved. There isn't enough money coming in from Social Security or retirement savings. Um, that 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 will be something that will be just normalized for us uh, in the very near future. So to get used to having uh, people who are more senior members of your team, quite literally, um, as, as a normal part of your working day. The third part is is that I see certain industries needing to transform almost overnight to meet the demands of this, you know, growing older population. One of the things that we know is consistent worldwide is that people want to stay in their homes. And their homes may be um, the physical dwelling in which they reside, but the home may also be their community. So what we see, what I see in particular, is a future driven by inclusion. So thinking about the needs of an older population, thinking about those pieces that um, will cause us to decline, you know, loss of vision, loss of mobility, and how design can be implemented to change the way the bathroom works lighting schemes throughout the home, the way in which airplanes are designed or hotels are laid out, how office places consider the ergonomics of all people, not just older people, but people who may have neurodiversity issues. All of these things are just going to be right in front of us for the foreseeable future. And it's because if we don't do them, it's going to cost us a hell of a lot more. So in that regard, those are probably the three biggest things that I see coming, but there's a lot more that are right behind those three. Yeah. Well, and that's what the book's all about. And I have to tell you, Bradley, you just, that, that statement, that, that, uh, you know, what you just told us resonates so much. I mean, with me and the way I think about my parents right now, uh, my dad is like, he's all into pickleball and it makes me realize, oh, that's why pickleball exploded. Like yeah. that to, really is what you're talking about. How do we mm-hmm. take something that a lot of people want, you know, athletics, sports, 
translate it into an aging population, but one that is still very able and very uh, virile, if you will, you know, for a better lack of a better term. And and it just like exploded because yeah. he's getting close to 70. But to, in my mind, he's the, almost the same as he was at 55. It's it's I love what you said there. It's not that. The, the end of our lives is, is is expanding. It's the middle is growing. Like it's just oh, yeah. this whole stretching out of the phases. That's exactly what it is. And where people say, fascinating. oh my God, I, I just want to die at 70 because 70 was so terrible for my grandmother. Well, 70 is not going to be like that for you at all. Right, 70 right. for people like you and me, 70 yeah. could mean running marathons. I mean, there are people right. that are well into their 90s doing marathons today. And, right. and make no mistake, this change is speeding up. This demographic change is speeding up. And and we believe without any quest, question at this point that the first person to live to 150 is already alive on this planet. So wow. yeah. that's yeah. not that that person's going to live 70 years in bad health. That means that person is going to gain an extra 50 or 60 years of good health. And man, that's where things get really exciting for us, especially if we're able to rethink the constructs in the world around us to meet the modern era, to meet the super age head on. Yeah, that's oh, man. See, that's how you end an interview right there. That's <laughs> how you do it, because now, you know, you want to learn more. So, again, Bradley Sherman, appreciate it. The book is The Super Age Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Um Tell us a little bit more. Like I, I, I was reading your Twitter earlier this morning. Uh, tell us where you are because now I'm well aware of the work you do. I know you have a consulting firm. I think is that correct? Is, it, is that correct. where you consider it? Um, so yep. tell us about it and where we can find you and learn more about this as this trend continues. Yeah, we're a research and advisory firm, and our our business is focused on helping organizations understand demographic change. Uh, we help them with their super age strategies, which rely on. Um, workforce recruitment and retention for diverse age populations, inclusion in design and, and innovation, as well as uh, marketing and communication strategies. You can find us online at thesuperage.com. Um, we speak uh, with big organizations, with Fortune 500 companies, uh, with governments. Uh, in fact, I'm speaking at the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo soon, um, which is pretty cool. And um, the business is building um, because demographics aren't going away. We know what the world is going to look like for the foreseeable future based upon the births and the deaths that happen each and every day. Um, and we help people decode that. We help them understand what these realities mean for their bottom line and then give them the strategies that they that they need to go forward. For me, you can find me just about anywhere on any social channel at Bradley Sherman. That's S-C-H-U-R-M-A-N. Awesome. And we will link to all of that, including uh, your firm, which, again, the name is? The Super Age. Super Age. There we go. Bradley, really appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. A subject we have not yet covered in about a 400, about 400 episodes, which is always a win for me. So thank you so much for, for being on the show and sharing your wisdom and your life's work. Of course. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Appreciate it. Welcome back. Happy 2022. It's crazy to think that 2021 has already gone by and over. Now we're in 2022. I hope for nothing but the best for health and happiness for you, your family, your friends. As always, we appreciate you listening to Smart People Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Bradley Sherman. 
Bradley's book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny, comes out on January 18th, 2022, and will be available wherever books are sold. All right, let's get through all the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. And if you're in the giving mood and you want to support us financially, you could always head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.